Welcome, everybody. I have been looking forward to this day for an entire week. In, in fact, I look forward to every Sunday because it's my favorite day. How many else? How many people here? Sunday is their favorite day? I know, Tirsa. Yeah, a lot of people. You know, in fact, the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, it says that if we call the Sabbath a delight, that healing will rise in us. And this, again, is a little bit of an antecedent to our passage today. And I'll, uh, Nate will probably pick this up uh, in his Ten Commandments series as we look at the Sabbath. Um, but I, I, I love coming to here. It's, I get up later than usual. It's, uh, it's a great day, and, and today we're doing the Nicene Creed. So that's really good. But let me ask you, um, what, what are your thoughts, what are your feelings about repentance? Is it, uh, do you find yourself, is it, I mean, are you for it or against it? <laughs> do you find a sense of, are you tightening up, have a sense of dread, like uh, humiliation, oh no? Or does your body relax and you have, have memories and imaginations of healing and peace and release? Do you know anybody that needs to repent? Could you point to them right now? <laughs> Hold that thought. If you don't remember anything today but this, I want you to remember this one thought. It's from Jonah, actually. I was going to ask if somebody knew where it was from. Jonah 2.9. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And he learned that at FBU, Fishbelly University. And it, it's a powerful, um, powerful thing. Well, with that, let's dive into uh, our passage, Ezekiel, that uh, Grace read for us. Thank you. Um, I want you to see what sort of uh, emotional responses are evoked. Uh, it's really amazing how it provides such delightful details. A lot of details here. Why? Now, as for a bit of background, though, uh, chapter 47 is actually part of a very long vision that started in chapter 40. Um, at that point, this is the final vision Ezekiel received, and a man whose face shone like bronze appears to Ezekiel holding a measuring tape and, and a measuring rod. The man warns him to pay close attention to every detail that he's going to be told. I think he has Ezekiel's attention. And he proceeds to give Ezekiel temples, uh, Ezekiel details of all the measurements of the new temple. Now, as you've seen the subject here, um, this is, there's a river involved here. Let's see. There we go. Well, let's go back. I don't know how you imagine this river to be. I was, this is from my summer vacation here. I don't actually know what this is, but that's a pretty good river. Well, you probably recognize that. I mean, wow. That's a pretty big river. You know, the Mississippi is like two miles wide at some places. Or maybe you think of uh, the river of God refreshing like this. 
I don't know whether you think of it as how you think of it, but oh, let's come back here. I like this one. So, picking up, this river's getting bigger and bigger as Ezekiel, he's getting more excited. It's ankle deep, it's knee deep, it's waist deep, it's like overwhelming, and it's drought resistant, by the way. So, the man told me to keep in mind what I had seen. He led me back along the riverbank. Suddenly, to my surprise, many trees were now growing on both sides of the river. Then he said to me, this river flows east through the desert into the Jordan Valley where it enters the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will heal the salty waters of the Dead Sea and make them fresh and pure. Everything that touches the water of this river will live. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea for its waters will be healed. Wherever this water flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea, fishing all the way from Engedi to Engalim. The shores will be covered with nets drying in the sun. Fish of every kind will fill the Dead Sea just as they fill the Mediterranean. But the marshes and swamps will not be purified. They will be sources of salt. All kinds of fruit trees will grow along both sides of the river. These leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month. Harry and David, gift, if you've ever got that, fruit of the month, without fail, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for healing. It looks like I got done ahead of time. So, <laughs> so, so this is wonderful. Um, the glory of mankind is, the glory of God is man fully alive. What is the chief purpose of mankind, of humanity? But to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We see that here. This is what God wants for us. Whatever vision we might have gotten of God, this is what God intends. Now, literal or metaphor? Well, it's pretty good as a metaphor, but usually in the Bible, the literal is even better than the metaphor, so I'm in. And why these details? Again, I don't know. I guess what God originally created is good. If you have some sort of vision, maybe a young person, that heaven is some sort of sterile place, you know, with uh, cubism, Picasso-like, you know, something that's just non-real that we've experienced, now, this is exciting. There are all kinds of plants for gardeners. There's fish for fishermen. And I was thinking of Herb Clausen yesterday. I'm sure there's wood shops there to work along beside the master carpenter. I mean, or better. Or better. So, um, the question I have for us now is how did we get here? How did we get to this place? It had been a better starting place, right? How did we get here to Ezekiel 47? You know, there's only 48 chapters in Ezekiel. Does anybody know what the very last verse of Ezekiel says? The Lord is there. Who was that? All right, thank you. Um, yeah, the name of that city from that time on will be the Lord is there. We really didn't even need all of this other stuff, did we? The Lord is there. 
That's really good, again, assuming that that's something you want. Remember, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, because only the pure in heart want to see God. So hopefully this is a desire that you have, that the Lord's presence will be here. Well, unfortunately, though, you would think that these great promises of God uh, would be more than enough to lure us away from every lesser thing, just like the songs. You know, your embrace is enough. It's more than enough. But unfortunately, the major prophets have not encountered that situation. Precisely, this is the tragically perverse situation that the major prophets have been confronting. And starting with Isaiah in the first chapter, if you remember, God basically comes to the people and he essentially asks, how's that working for you? Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burn with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. How's that working for you? There's a close parallel passage uh, out of the mouth of Jesus, Revelations 3.17. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Ouch. But then, then and only, only then, God proceeds to offer us the deal of a lifetime. Most of you are familiar with the following passage. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. You'd take this deal, wouldn't you? You'd accept the trade. Again, Jonah addresses our tragic propensity for making really horrible deals. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Forfeiture, the word itself only occurs two or three times in the Bible, but it's a central role. Jesus doesn't condemn us. You know, we're condemned already. You know, when we make these horrible choices, when Adam and Eve make their choices, they forfeit. If you show up at noon for a 10 a.m. flight, the, the flight attendants might be sad, but you forfeited, you forfeited. So in our first look at Ezekiel three weeks ago, God assured us that he found no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Then later we learned that God desperately desires to replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And last week, Nate talked to us about how God longs to bring new life into the deadest of dead souls. So why didn't Ezekiel and the prophets just start with this good news? Why all of these sobering and frightful chapters regarding judgment and desolation? I mean, these aren't the verses you memorize, right? I mean, you don't memorize the verses about judgment and desolation. So much of what Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel have had to tell us has been very dark and unsettling and even terrifying at times. But why? What purpose does it serve? Well, you're not alone if you're asking this. This was precisely the question Ebenezer Scrooge asked the ghost of Christmas future 
before uncovering the name on the tombstone. O Spirit, before I draw near to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be? Or are they shadows of the things that might be? O Spirit, hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Why? Scrooge's repentance is deeply moving, but remember just how long it took Scrooge to get to this point, right? He had to be powerfully sobered by a lot of reality. Some really, really bad news for the sole purpose of waking up to the horrible trade that he'd been making. In fact, the Apostle Paul takes a similar approach uh, as the prophets does in Romans chapter 1, which maybe makes us hesitant to, you know, recommend Romans to unbelievers. But it's a strategy that worked for the prophets. And now here in Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind. And Paul goes on and on for a while. I mean, it's like almost, you know, you just want to stop reading. But one of the chief accusations that Paul is reflecting that, that God has is they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped idols, worthless idols instead. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So why all of this emphasis on repentance? Why did Jesus start his earthly ministry with the words, repent for the kingdom of God is near? Well, because sin matters. Sin is a monster of such awful mean that to be hated is but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with face, we first endure and then embrace. Sin is insidious. It is rebellion and unbelief. Sin is separation, alienation, non-reality, and deception. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Like Isaiah said of the idol maker, this thing in my hand is a lie. Sin is the state in which we have forgotten our positions as sons and daughters of God. If you remembered, if you would remember at every moment your position as a son and daughter of God, if you would remember, everything else would lose its allure. So sin involves all these things. So repentance requires memory. It requires remembering the heights from which we've fallen. It requires our remembering our first love. And the more specific our repentance, the more profound our transformation. Our sins are not only those of commission, but of omission as well. As reflected in the classic lament, I have done the things I ought not to have done, and I have left undone the things I ought to have done. We need to repent of our dullness, our intentional dullness, and unrenewed mindsets. Our loves are disordered, and our desires are all skewed. We have doubted the power and goodness of God. We have withheld our best from our master. We think we have played it safe, and our first priorities have been ourselves and not the kingdom of God. Just like Adam and Eve, our actions betray our secret belief that God might be cheating, cheating us and depriving us out of that to which 
we feel entitled. And so we haven't fully pursued the pearl of great price. So what does repentance look like in real life? Well, there's a lot of very profound biblical examples that I want to look at, but just a, a simple one from everyday life. And repentance should not be an annual thing. It should happen perhaps many times a day. A very simple, mundane example. Uh, I'm reminded of by Stan Austin, who practices repentance all the time on the golf course. He repents of having foolishly chosen the wrong club, and he knows it. He knows it two seconds after he swung the club that he really should have had the bigger club. And how does he know it? Well, in the game of golf, it's crystal clear for all to see when you've missed the mark. If your ball is embedded in a sand trap instead of on the green, then you missed the mark. There's no one else to blame, and it would be absurd to deny the outcome. But it's just a matter of fact, he repents and he moves on. Zacchaeus, in the Bible, what do we learn from his repentance? Well, it was done out of joy. It wasn't compelled. It was spontaneous. Oh, Lord, here this day I do repent of all my thievery. I no longer want to continue on in this way. I henceforth, if I have cheated anybody back, I will pay them back fourfold. I will no longer cling to worthless idols. David and Nathan, remember the story after David, uh, man after God's own heart, but boy, I mean, you know, you can't really get much worse in a, an adultery and a murder cover-up. And the adultery is even worse because of all the hundreds of concubines that David had. So, I mean, David's without excuse. Nathan confronts him, and he says to David, you are that man. And David's response, immediately, I am that man. A sense of relief, maybe, that it was finally out in the open, although everybody in Jerusalem knew it. And we see Psalm 51 written out of this, and he says, against you and you only have I sinned, and then what is evil in your sight? All sin is ultimately before God. And we have Psalm 51 uh, to show. And he's not only content there to confess sins he's actually committed. We see in Psalm 139 that he's going after, search my heart, O God. You know, keep me, from, you know, if there's hidden sins, reveal them to me. Daniel, Daniel repents. Righteous Daniel repents of his, in solidarity with all the other people. And it's after he's read Ezekiel and the prophets, and he's crying out, we have sinned, we have done what is evil. And then our final example, of course, is the prodigal son. What had happened as this, this young man is destitute in a foreign land, not even getting to eat the, the pig's food? He'd forgotten his conditionship as sonship. He'd forgotten that he was a son of God. But then he decided he made a horrible trade. He made his horrible trade, acknowledged it, came back home hoping, hoping he could maybe, you know, squeeze in the back door, sleep in the barn. 
He'd confessed that he had sinned against his father and against heaven. But of course, his father wasn't having it, right? The father, you know, rejoiced at seeing him, didn't want to even, you know, hear the story and immediately welcomed his lost son back. So how do we feel about repentance now? C.S. Lewis in his great divorce writes through the mouth of George MacDonald, that's the big joke. We've all been wrong. And the sooner that we accept that fact, the sooner we can get on with really living. Repentance is not a punishment or a humiliation. It's a gift. It's our freedom and our release. It's the difference between life and death. We are graciously drawn into repentance because we become increasingly convinced that God is greater than anything sin has to offer. We are called to repentance because Jesus really likes us. He loves us, but he really, really likes us because he created us. Yes, Jesus likes me. Yes, Jesus likes me. He really does. So far in the major prophets, we've already been offered a heart of flesh for a heart of stone, the breath of God in our lungs, a hope in our future, Emmanuel, God with us, and now the river of life and eternity with Jesus. In other words, God's ultimate appeal to us is not primarily one of fear of judgment and condemnation. It is true, as we've seen, that our Father will go to any length to redeem us and will forcefully confront us with the contrast of our sin. But he longs to convince us that his love and joy and glory and peace and indwelling presence all far surpass anything that sin might have as a counteroffer. Hebrews 6, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, or rather that he is the reward of those who seek him. And when that is your heart's ultimate desire, well, you end up with Ezekiel chapter 47. So, the reward, of course, is God himself, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, our passage from Ezekiel is beautifully recapitulated in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be a curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Now, before John writes about this in Revelation, well, I guess there's some question about the order that they were written, but in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, we see Jesus on the last and greatest day of the feast, standing up and shouting in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus is the river of life. Do you know anybody whom his life is flowing in and out of? I do. 
I know a lot of you, a lot of you, and I call you by name, but I'm afraid I would forget someone. When I was in college, my smartest teacher of them all, in advanced mathematics class, his conversion, while he was getting his doctorate at Brown University, he went over to visit a colleague and was greeted at the, day, at the door by the colleague's wife. And she was so glowing and radiant and full of the love of Jesus flowing over, he knew right then and there he wanted some of that. So, what will you and I give for this water? What will you give up for this water? Have you been trying to drink from broken cisterns? Are you clinging to any worthless idols? How's that working for you? The truth is that you and I cannot artificially manufacture or generate the type of desire in our hearts that leads to our wholeheartedly making this trade. It's a gift. It's a complete and total gift, 100% grace. And if you're even a little bit sad about my telling you that you're unable to generate desire for God, then rejoice because that very sadness is evidence that God has given you the desire to desire Him. You're on your way. So thank God profusely and pray that He would fan into flame this gift until your desire for Jesus intensifies to the point that you can truly say with the Apostle Paul that you consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord.